Good morning. My name is Jim, and the Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 15. If any of your fellow Hebrews, male or female, sell themselves into your service, they can work for you for six years, but in the seventh year, you must set them free from your service. Furthermore, when you set them free from your service, you must not let them go empty-handed. Instead, provide for them fully from your flock, food, and wine. You must give to them from that which the Lord, your God, has blessed you. Remember how each of you was a slave in Egypt and how the Lord, your God, saved you. That is why I'm commanding you to do this right now. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Hi, my name is Evan. The New Testament reading is found in Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29. You are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, if you belong to Christ, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Annalise. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Luke 10, 38 through 40. While Jesus and his disciples were traveling, Jesus entered a village and where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his message. By contrast, Martha was preoccupied with getting everything ready for their meal. So Martha came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to prepare the table all by myself? Tell her to help me. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you make our hearts good soil for your gospel this morning? Would you help us to receive your word in such a way that your life takes root in us and sprouts in a way that gives life to our souls to our relationships, to our church, to our community, to our world. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. It's great to see you this morning. Good morning to those of you here in the room and those of you that are watching online. We love you. We miss you. We hope you are doing well. Uh, We are still here at the World Prayer Center, obviously, and we still don't have a date to go back to Palmer. So that is still forthcoming at some point, someday. We'll keep you updated as those conversations are ongoing. In recent years, uh, there has been the rise of several movements calling on the United States to account for its mistreatment of racial and ethnic minorities and women. And correspondingly, there have been the rise of number of voices calling the church, particularly predominantly white evangelical churches in the West, to reckon with our own mistreatment of women and people of color. And for some of you, these conversations are not abstractions. They're not hypothetical situations. They're things that you or someone that you love have experienced. 
things that you've personally experienced, prejudice or abuse, things that have happened that have been traumatic to your soul, destructive to your faith. At times, those things have been done uh, in the name of Jesus. At times, those things have been done with a Bible in the person's hand or scriptures on someone's lips. And I am so very sorry um, that some of you have experienced those things. You've experienced them in the church or experienced them from Christians or from Christian leaders. In the wake of those movements and even personal experiences, what we've seen in our culture is that some have denounced Christianity as inherently racist and misogynistic. Some have or are in the process of deconstructing or attempting to reconstruct faith based on what it is that they've seen or heard. Others have tried to listen closely to what's being said and to try to address those concerns in the church. And then others have been deeply concerned about the potential for the church uh, to be influenced by Marxist or liberal uh, ideologies. The church is in no way immune to being influenced in those ways. But perhaps for most of us, we find ourselves listening and having lots of questions about the Bible It's like, what do we do with this? Or we have questions about church history or questions about the state of the church today. And and maybe at the core underneath all those questions is we're going, well, what's the right response? What, What do we do? What's the right thing for the church to do in these conversations? How do we enter in in a way that's caring and compassionate that as well holds on to our convictions about who Jesus is and what the church is called to do? Perhaps the major question that's being asked in the middle of all of this is, is that question is, is Christianity inherently racist? Is Christianity inherently sexist? Or are those acts actually deviations, even betrayals of the gospel? Are they actually betrayals of our core convictions about who we are as the people of God? And this morning's text actually is, I think, foundational for answering those questions, for looking and talking about these things. We're in the middle of a series through the book of Galatians, a series that we're calling The Revolutionary Gospel, because in it we're looking at the far-reaching impact of Jesus, that sometimes when we think about the gospel, we think solely in terms of the eternal or spiritual impact of Jesus, which is a huge part of the book of Galatians, but Galatians is also looking at the social impact of the gospel, the social impact of what it is that Jesus has come to do, the impact of actually being able to experience eternity in the here and now, and the way that's meant to be reflected in the life of the church, that we see that the gospel actually has implications for our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And at the heart of really Galatians, especially the first part of Galatians, his major concern is the unity of the church, which is meant to be a witness to the gospel in the world. He's concerned about divisions that are happening in the church. And we pick up in today's reading, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. And we read what is probably the most famous or well-known passage in all of Galatians. And he says this, Paul writing, you are all God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. 
all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek or Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So now if you belong to Christ, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. Paul is writing to the church in Galatia and subsequently writing to all the churches everywhere at all time, all of those who call on the name of Christ, to all who are in Christ, he says, you are all God's children. You are all Abraham's descendants. You are all heirs of God's promises that he made to Abraham, those promises that we talked about last week. And then he says, you are all one in Christ, one entity, one body, one family. You are all one. So within this new family, within this new entity, within this new body called the church, within the new family of Jesus, he said there is neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile. In other words, in the new family of Jesus, ethnic or racial divisions or hierarchies that are based on racial or ethnic things have no place in the church. That they have place in the world that the church is living in, but they have no place in the church. This has been the focus of Paul's letter all throughout. What he's writing to is he's writing to a church that's dividing itself up between Jew and Gentile along ethnic lines. They are separating themselves from one another. And he says, stop it. That has no place in God's church. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say within the new family of Jesus, there is also neither slave nor free, male and female. He goes on and he claims that slaves and women have equal status to free people and to men in this new family. And Paul's words in Paul's day were absolutely revolutionary. Nowhere else do we find this claim. Nowhere else do we see this being written. Nowhere else do we see this being lived out? Paul says that racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, and gender differences, though they are not eliminated, he's not saying that those things have gone away, but he's saying that they are no basis for belonging to or participating in the kingdom and the church. He's not saying that those things aren't actual realities. Racial differences, ethnic differences, gender differences, socioeconomic differences. He says, yes, those are all things. And that's the way we're used to kind of grouping up and dividing and creating hierarchies in the world. Humanity has been doing that forever. But he's saying in the church, that's not actually how we go about living out the gospel. That there is no basis for dividing along those lines in the church, in the new family of Jesus. What I want to attempt to do this morning is I want to attempt to unpack the implications of that passage. I want to try to set these words in the context of the ancient Near East and of Greco-Roman societies, the place that the Old Testament comes to us in in the ancient Near East, and the New Testament coming to us in Greco-Roman society and civilization. 
I want us to try to understand the culture because in order to understand the canon, we have to understand the culture. But what we too often end up doing in the church is we canonize the culture rather than actually looking to see how the canon of scripture actually critiques and subverts and changes the cultures that it's written into. Those cultures are reality of the text and the text is addressing life inside of those things. I wanna see how this passage relates to other passages in the Old Testament and New Testament. I wanna touch really briefly on the church's historical successes and the church's historical failures in trying to live this out. And I'm going to make my best effort knowing that I'm going to fail. Um, That I have limits to my own knowledge and understanding and perspective on these issues. And partially because I just don't have time to address all of the different nuances and all of the things that have happened throughout church history in every single text. But my hope, as it is in every sermon, is to start a conversation, not to end one. The great hope is that looking at this text and its implications will first and foremost start a conversation between us and God. It's the most important conversation is the conversation of prayer, of saying, Jesus, where are you coming to me in this text? Jesus, how are you showing yourself to me in this text? Jesus, how are you inviting me to respond in and through this text? And then secondarily, to to start a conversation with one another, that to be a community shaped by the gospel means to have conversations around these things with one another, to be able to know how to talk and dialogue and discuss and have some footing to go on for those conversations, and also to be able to equip us to have conversations with those in our community that are hurting, those in our community that are confused with those in our community who don't know how to find their way through these conversations. So I want to talk about slavery first. In the ancient Near East, which is the setting for the Old Testament, and in the Greco-Roman world, which is the setting for the New Testament, slavery was legal and it was widespread. It was a pre-existing, culturally condoned practice. It had been happening and was happening for a long time. Generally, in the ancient Near East and in the Greco-Roman world, people became slaves through economic crisis or through war. That this was primarily the way that people found themselves in slavery. That they were forced into slavery due to debt or due to poverty and needing in some way to connect themselves with a household, to have some shelter and some provisions with them. Sometimes people would be forced to sell themselves into slavery because of the situations they found themselves economically. Others ended up in slavery because they were captured in war and forced into that kind of world. Rarely in the ancient Near East and in the Greco-Roman world was it racially or ethnically motivated. Rarely in that setting. The major potential exception for that actually is Israel and Egypt, is the major sort of potentially, um, ex- potential exemption to that. But even Pharaoh's own words around Israel's slavery is that he's concerned that they're going to rise up and overthrow him, that there is a military or security sort of concern that's even driving Pharaoh in the midst of that. 
This is the reality of the world that the scriptures find themselves in. And it's true that neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament call the people of God to end slavery. And that's troubling. We're wanting that to be there. We're looking for it. Where is the, just the call to end this and to end it right now? We don't find that. But we do find are teachings in the scriptures, laws in the scripture that actually radically alter and subvert the practice in such a way that lays the groundwork for its eventual abolishment. That's what we find in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, we do find that, it, that the Lord permitted slavery in Israel. But when we look at that compared to other nations, the laws about who was enslaved how long they were enslaved, and how they were treated as slaves are drastically different than what you find in any ancient Near Eastern society in such that it drastically limited and changed the practice in some very, very, very significant ways. For example, it was expected that if any Israelite ended up in slavery, that it was the responsibility of the community to rescue them out of that. That that was the expectation on the community to go and pay their debts and rescue them out of that situation. Slaves in ancient Israel were granted things like Sabbath. And there were rules around seven years of slavery afterwards followed with emancipation or rules around jubilee that caused all sorts of sort of resetting of things economically in society. As we even saw in our Old Testament reading that every seventh year when slaves were set free, they were sent out with generous provisions with the hope that they would never find themselves in this situation again. These kinds of things were unheard of in the ancient Near East. And they were motivated constantly in every single one of these instructions. They were, they were motivated by Israel's own history. They were constantly told to remember that they too were slaves. And then that would fundamentally alter how they would approach this. But as that developed, we actually see what happens as the Old Testament continues is an imagination to start to develop about a future without slavery. That as they saw their own failures to live up to the changes that the Lord was instituting through the law, the prophets criticized those failures, called Israel to account, and imagined a future day where there would be no one who was oppressed in slavery. Jesus picks up on this. As he goes to launch his ministry, he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah, and he says that he's here to fulfill that dream, to liberate the oppressed that this was fundamental to Jesus' own ministry. And so as we see the New Testament continue, what we find is teachings beginning to kind of move in that direction. Paul encourages slaves in 1 Corinthians 7 to seek freedom if it's possible. In 1 Timothy 1, he condemns slave traders. It says that the people of God should never be a part of this kind of activity. In his household codes in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, when he's addressing the relationships between masters and slaves, he calls on everyone to voluntarily submit themselves to one another, which is unprecedented in the ancient world. And every other ancient household code that we find that Paul is working from and actually subverting, the household codes only tell masters how to rule and all the things that they can or cannot do to their slaves 
It's mainly them just saying, here's how you rule your house. But in Paul's household codes, he puts boundaries on masters for the protections of slaves. He gives slaves rights that they didn't previously have and masters responsibilities that did not previously exist. And as so, he actually undermines the system, turns it over on his head. And we see this work itself out in Paul most radically in the letter that he wrote to Philemon is he's talking about the return of a slave to, named uh, Onesimus to Philemon's house. He writes this, Maybe this is the reason that Onesimus was separated from you for a while, so that you may have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. And that is a dearly loved brother. Paul is instructing another believer to set his slave free and to treat him not as property, but to treat him as a brother in Christ. Because of those passages in that trajectory, what we see happening in the early church, which was politically powerless and an often persecuted minority, is that they were dedicating their funds to free slaves. That as they were taking up their tithes and offerings, that portions of that were dedicated to setting people free. That churches became safe houses for runaway slaves. That we see Gregory of Nyssa in the 300s actually writing sermons opposing slavery in every possible form. Augustine, around the same time period, leading his church to free 120 slaves from a slave ship. Constantine recognizing the church's efforts at setting people free and trying to actually do what they can in that situation that they found themselves in. As he becomes a follower of Christ, he gives judicial authority to bishops to hear the cases involving slaves. There's a bishop in the 600s who gave away his wealth in order to free every slave that he could, and he called on the people of his congregation to do the same. That we see this movement throughout church history, especially in the first couple of centuries when the church didn't have political power, doing everything that it possibly could to live out the gospel in this way. But sadly, when the church did have political power, it did not outlaw the practice. And eventually what we see even more disturbingly is that in the rise of imperialism, that nations that claimed to be Christian perpetuated the practice, expanded it, and made it primarily about racial and ethnic minorities. And they oftentimes did so in the name of Jesus, and they oftentimes did so using the Bible to justify their practice. A Bible whose whole push is actually in the other direction. And so in many ways, slavery continued without significant opposition until the abolitionist movement, until that movement and the civil rights movement, which, by the way, were largely Christian. The participants in and the leaders of were Christians, saying this is not right. This is not the way that God intended things to be. And their arguments, their ideology, their theology behind it was distinctively Christian. The primary texts were Genesis 1, that God made all people in his image, and Galatians chapter 3, that in the new family of Jesus, 
there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave nor free, male and female. Rowan Williams said it this way at one point. He said, And although Judaism and Christianity begin in the world where, for example, slavery is taken for granted, both of them have what I sometimes call a long fuse. That is, they lit a long fuse of argument and discovery which eventually explodes and people finally realize, actually, we should do something about this. But as Rebecca McLaughlin says in her book, Confronting Christianity, we can all agree that that fuse was too long. And it was made longer by our own failures. It was made longer by the failures of people claiming the name of Christ. We have to acknowledge that many who owned slaves, who opposed emancipation, who fought against civil rights, who have perpetuated racism, have also claimed the name Christian. And these are inexcusable betrayals of the gospel. That is what they are. Inexcusable betrayals of the gospel. And I think as the people of God, we also have to remember that the work isn't done. That estimates today say that there are between 30 and 45 million people that are in slavery today. Many of them women and children who are in forced labor camps or caught up in sex trafficking. That slavery is not a thing of the past, it is a modern day reality. And we also have to recognize that socioeconomic oppression and racism have not been eradicated. The prejudice exists, it's real, it's not, this is not, these are not things that have happened, these are things that are still happening. And we have to say that in the people of God, in the new family of Jesus, these things have no place. They have no place in our community. And I think also the people of God, as we hold on to that reality, we also have to hold on to the other reality of celebrating the gospel. That in Jesus, there is no longer Jew and Gentile. There is no longer slave and free. That in the new family of Jesus, we've actually been made equal and been united together in Christ. And because of that reality, because of the movement of Judeo-Christianity, of the Old Testament, of the New Testament, because of that movement, the church is the most diverse movement in the history of the world. Not immune to the sins of the world, but it is the most diverse movement to ever hit the planet. And we are a part of that. We can celebrate that while acknowledging we have a lot of work to do and some of the work has been made more difficult by our own failures. As the people of God, we hold those things together. All right, so as it comes to women, in the ancient Near East, again, the setting for the Old Testament, And in the Greco-Roman world, the setting for the New Testament, they were patriarchal cultures. There's no way around that. They were patriarchal cultures. So it's not unique to them. Nearly every known culture in history have placed women at a lower status, and their status has been linked to the men in their life, either their fathers or their husbands or their sons. We've seen that in every known documented culture that that is typically how culture has organized itself. These are pre-existing 
culturally normative systems the Old Testament and the New Testament find themselves in. And it's true that neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament call on the people of God to end patriarchy. But they do, if we pay attention, actually critique and subvert the system from within. And that the trajectory of the scriptures is to elevate women leaders and to lay the ground for equality. We see this right away in the opening pages of Genesis as the Genesis radically declares that men and women are both made in the image of God, that they are both image bearers. This claim is not made anywhere else in the ancient world. It's made here in the pages of scripture. In the Old Testament, we see prominent roles for women. It's Hagar, who's the first person who ever names God. It's Tamar, who's declared more righteous than Judah, the head of the tribe that would produce David and the Messiah. It's Shipra and Puah, two Hebrew midwives who lead Israel's resistance against Pharaoh, who, by the way, doesn't even get a name. They get named Pharaoh. We don't know which one, but we know the names of the two women midwives who resisted the most powerful man in the world. We see the stories of Miriam and Deborah and Huldah and Ruth and Esther, leaders, prophetesses, heroes of the faith. And at the same time, we see that women are frequently victims. Don't have to read the story in Judges about the Levite's concubine to see something more terrible and tragic and worse than that happening to someone. And even at times in the Old Testament, they are the victims of some of the Old Testament's most important figures. Sarah and Abraham's treatment at the hand of Abraham. Tamar's treatment at the hands of Judah. Bathsheba's treatment at the hand of David. But these actions are condemned. They're never commended. They happened and they're heartbreaking, but they're not instructive for the people of God. This is not how we are supposed to live. So we turn to the New Testament. Women are beautifully and wonderfully included in Jesus' genealogy, giving us a hint of what's to come. It's Jesus' mother, Mary, who becomes an example for us of what faith is meant to look like. Women are considered among Jesus' disciples. That passage that we read in our New Testament reading is so often described as this relationship between Mary and Martha and their drama as a sibling set. But the key phrase in there is that Mary is sitting at the Lord's feet. What Mary has done is she's entered into the male, house, the, the male part of the household and she is learning with Jesus' male disciples and Jesus says, this is her rightful place to be. A radical statement in that world. It was a woman who anointed Jesus' feet before his death, a priestly act. It's women who first proclaimed that Jesus was raised from the dead, that they are the ones who were first entrusted with the gospel. On the day of Pentecost, the spirit fell on men and women. Women were persecuted in the book of Acts as a sign that they were actually influential figures and leaders in the early church. Tabitha was named as one of the many female disciples. Lydia was a businesswoman who led her household into faith and to baptism. Priscilla and Aquila taught 
uh, Apollos and Priscilla is always listed first as a recognition of her prominence in the church. Philip's daughters prophesied, which in 1 Corinthians, Paul says is actually greater than teaching. Phoebe's named a deacon, not a servant. She's a deacon. She's given that official title, the title that Paul uses most often for teachers and preachers. It's Phoebe who likely read his letter out loud to the church in Rome. Junia is named prominent among the apostles. Judea and Syntyche are called co-workers by Paul. Nearly every title and description of a leader in the New Testament is at some point applied to a woman in the New Testament. In the household codes, Paul is not promoting patriarchal culture. He's subverting it. He's calling for mutual submission. He's de-emphasizing the sort of authoritarian rule and power of a patriarch in the household. He's given agency to women and restrictions to men men where they did not exist before. He's setting up a household that's based on equality, not on hierarchy. There's only two passages in the whole New Testament that might seemingly restrict women from any sort of public leadership in the church. It's 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2. And I unfortunately don't have time to unpack them today. I'm going to post some resources on our Facebook page that do. But both are actually correcting specific problems and in specific churches. They are not universal prohibitions. We know that for sure in Corinthians because he's saying just a few chapters before, when women preach, when, or when they prophesy, and when they pray, this is what that should look like. So something else is going on in that text. We either have to explain those two texts or we have to explain away a hundred other situations in the New Testament. Those passages are specific situations for specific churches. In the early church, sociologist and historian Rodney Stark has shown that though the world was majority male, the early church was majority female. Some estimates say that there were twice as many men as women living at the time. And primarily because female infanticide was a common practice in the Greco-Roman world. But it was the church who had rescued those female babies and raised them. It was in the church that women found dignity and honor that they obtained a substantially higher status within the church than in the world around them. It's in the church that they found a different kind of life. And this continued for the first five to six centuries of the church. But then for a variety of reasons, we actually see significant regression. And that women's roles became more and more and more restricted. Much of that's reflected in Christian theology and practice coming up out of that time. That treated women as inferior and denied them leadership roles in the church. Those are based solely on poor readings of those two passages in Paul and Paul's household codes. Became the motivation for those. But there were breakthroughs. There were women who were authors. There were women who were preachers. There were women who were missionaries. There were even two women that became bishops. But it has taken a long time for the church to course correct. We began to see it happening in the Wesleyan and charismatic revivals. We see it happening a little bit in the early women's rights movements, which, by the way, were largely led and organized by Christians. 
their participants and leaders were Christians, their arguments were Christian, they were based in Genesis 1 and in Galatians chapter 3. That in the new family of God, this kind of inequality should not exist. And we have to acknowledge as the people of God that we have a long way to go. That many who oppressed or abused women also claimed to be Christian. And in many cases, they used the Bible to justify their actions. And in many cases, they were protected by the church. And once again, that is an inexcusable betrayal of the gospel. It is an inexcusable betrayal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as the people of God, we have to recognize that the work isn't done. That we still have a lot of work to do in the church, in the U.S., in the world. There's much work left to be done. And at the same time, we can celebrate the gospel. That because of Jesus, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. That we can celebrate that the church is the most empowering movement of women in the history of the world. Yes, the work's not done. And yes, we have a long way to go. But it's the gospel that lit the long fuse. And it's the people of God that are invited in to say, in the new family of Jesus, this kind of inequality has no place. But we are all one in Christ. So where does that leave us today? I'm not going to presume, presume that I know, especially since I don't know all of your stories. I don't presume to know how this hits you. And so I'll just share where I am today. I find myself in thinking through these issues that I am both grateful and grieved. I am grateful for the gospel and I am grateful for the witness of faithful saints through the years. That we can look back and we can see heroes along the way and say, yes, 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 yes. I'm grateful. And yet I'm also grieved. I'm grieved for our failures. And I'm grieved for those who still suffer. And I feel called in the middle of it to two things for sure. To repentance and to prayer. Oftentimes we think of repentance only as something that we do for individual sin. And yet I think the people of God have always been called to repent on behalf of the community at large. That on behalf of our family, on behalf of those who have also carried the name of Christ and who have done terrible things in the name of Jesus, we acknowledge and repent of those things and call to pray to ask for the Holy Spirit's help. (laughs) Because at the end of the day, the work that needs to be done is something that can only be empowered by the Spirit of God at work among the people of God. That all the tips and strategies and ideas and all of those kind of things will fall short if the people of God are not empowered by the presence of God. So I pray for help. 
and I'm committed. I'm committed to Christ and the church. I still believe that the church is the most diverse and empowering movement in the world. And I know that Christ and his church have given me life, and I want to give my life to Jesus and to his people. And I want to lean in and join the work of the saints to see the gospel fully realized amongst the community of people. That's what I want to give myself to. And I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for the future. I'm hopeful that in the, in the long future of the day that I know when Jesus comes back and sets everything to right again. And he wipes away every tear from our eye. And he heals every pain. But I'm hopeful that God is still at work in his church today in significant ways in bringing freedom to captives, of empowering people who've been disempowered, of making significant changes in society and culture because of the way the church lives out its life together as a witness against prevailing currents. And I know I need to keep coming to the table. I know I need the body and blood of Christ I need to keep coming to the table where Jesus extends forgiveness to us and invites us to extend it to others. Those who have hurt us, those who have angered us, those who have disappointed us, those that have made our work harder. Come to the table where Jesus levels the ground for us all. And he tears down all of our walls and resets all of our cultural presuppositions and says, no, there is no longer Jew or Greek or slave or free or male and female, you are all one in Christ. That Jesus' body was broken to break down the walls that divide us. And you come to the table to be reminded that Jesus unites us to himself and unites us to one another and unites us to the world in ministry. You keep coming to the table to Jesus, to the one who sets us all free for whatever bondage we find ourselves in. We need to keep coming to this space. So as the band comes forward, we're gonna do the one thing that I know to do. <laughs> to pray and to ask for help. And to come to Christ. And we're gonna come to the table a little bit differently today that I want to take a moment instead of doing a corporate prayer of confession, just have a moment of silence and invite Jesus into this moment and to say, okay, Jesus, what is it that you're saying to me today? What is the invitation for me today? Where are you, what are you, you calling me to repent of or to pray for. Take a moment around the room and we'll just ask Jesus into this moment.